this great book written by the disciple named John for our good. Just to remind you, we are in a section of the gospel that's is typically considered the farewell discourse as Jesus has set his sights toward the cross and is preparing for what's about to take place. We come to this this passage we'll read in just a, a few moments. But first, a simple question for you. Do you remember what it was like to fall in love? Now, I know many of you, some of you better be going, oh yeah, of course we do. I know I do. I remember what it's like to fall in love. While there may have been a number of times in your life that you thought that you were in love, when it really happened, you knew it, didn't you? You know, people always ask that question, how do you know? You just know. You can't really explain that from one person to the next. And in a way, when that took place, it took over your life in a very real practical way. It took you over. At least in the beginning, I know it was that way for me. The moment I fell in love with my wife, everything changed. I was consumed with her. I didn't know her all that well in the beginning. There was still a lot to learn, but I was consumed with her. I couldn't stop thinking about her. Everything that I did was viewed from the perspective of being with her. No matter what it was. I, I couldn't make a decision without wondering how it might affect this relationship. I wanted to please her more than I was capable of doing. And I wanted everyone else to see her the way I did. That she was the most wonderful woman that ever walked the face of the earth. And there was no one better than her. And I was the one that she was in love with of all people. Now, while I had no way of knowing what the future held in those early days, I knew that being in love with Jennifer changed my life both emotionally and very practically. Now, while every and any illustration that we might use to try to illustrate biblical truth falls short at some point, I believe that falling in love serves as an an adequate, not perfect, but an adequate illustration of the biblical doctrine of union with Christ. Those who have experienced God's grace and salvation and found new life in Christ experience a very vivid change in their lives. They are consumed by Christ. They can't stop thinking about Christ. They, they long to please Christ. In their hearts and minds, there is no one above Christ. And while there's no way of the new believer of knowing what the immediate future may hold, their life is radically changed in every way. Emotionally, practically, and obviously spiritually. The phrase, in Christ, occurs More than 90 times in the New Testament and in many, many more times if you take all the varying similar phrases such as with Christ. But in Christ, more than 90 times in the New Testament. The New Testament views every aspect of the Christian's life from the perspective of being in 
Christ. For example, Romans 3, 24. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, For as in in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Then a very familiar one to many of you in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is... In Christ, he is a new creation. Now, this union language that that we speak of serves to teach us the significant and essential truth about our existence from the very moment that we are saved by God's grace until the time in which God removes us from this life in this world. Jesus is not merely a doorway to a new life. He is that life. Jesus is not merely by our side to help us along the way. The Bible teaches us that he is in us and we are in him. Jesus is the source and the goal of all that the Christian, the true believer, seeks. New life is no life at all if it isn't in Christ. Now, while a subject or a doctrine such as union with Christ may be difficult for us to wrap our minds around or to fully grasp and explain, it is foundational to our understanding of the life that God gives us by His grace in Christ. Now, hear that. It it is foundational. This, This reality of being in Christ is foundational to our understanding of the life that God Gives by His grace to sinners like you and I in Christ. And it is this truth that lies at the, the, the source of understanding much of what the Bible teaches about living the Christian life. Let me repeat that one as well. It's, it's this truth, union with Christ, being in Christ, that lies at the very source or foundation of us understanding much of what the Bible teaches about living out The Christian life. Therefore, it is the truth that we need to pursue, however elusive it might be. Everyone, and by that I mean everyone, everyone ever born in this life experiences life in Adam, which will ultimately result in death. But those of us who find themselves in Christ, in the the new Adam or the second Adam, while we may experience physical death, we will ultimately experience what real life was designed to be. As I mentioned earlier from 1 Corinthians, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, while Jesus doesn't exhaustively teach or provide exhaustive teaching on this truth that we call union with Christ in this passage, he does seek to introduce uh, the essential truth to his disciples prior to him going to the cross, dying and resurrecting. In order that 
they might begin to understand it when the Holy Spirit, which has already been mentioned and promised, and which John is going to turn his attention to in the next several passages, when the Holy Spirit is given to them to guide them into all truth. And so we can say for us today, this Jesus speaks these words. They're recorded in the the Word of God for our benefit today so that by the Holy Spirit we will be guided into all truth. And it's to this doctrine that is the doctrine of union with Christ that I want us to think on for the next few minutes. So read with me 1 John chapter 15 verses 1 through 17. I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does, no, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Our father, we do ask that you would grant us discernment as we look into your word and seek to to grow in our understanding. Not not for the sake of increased knowledge, but so that we might Increase in the knowledge of, of you, who you are, that our love may increase, that, that how we express that in our everyday life might increase and abound to your glory. So we pray that by the, the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit in these moments that you would open our eyes, that we might see these truths and, and, and even begin to grasp in the slightest amount how they affect our lives, the, the very even the mundane things of our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would Open our minds to to give us understanding. Open our hearts, Lord, that as we do begin to to meditate and and, and deal with the things that arise from your word, Lord, that we would be moved to embrace it and not reject it and go our own way, but to 
to gladly and joyfully embrace it with all our hearts that we might be conformed by your word to the image of our Lord and Savior. And may we never be guilty of conforming your word into our own image. We pray you be glorified in this moment, these moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In John 15, I want us to look at the, these truths or truth that Jesus speaks of in, in, in several ways under four headings. And they are these. Number one, Jesus is the source of true life. Number two, Jesus is the source of true satisfaction. Number three, Jesus is the source of true joy. And lastly, Jesus is the source of true salvation. Now, as I list those out, I recognize the redundancy uh, in those points. To say at each point, true. And, and I do so purposely because we need to recognize that for every truth that we find in the Word of God, that there is waiting Upon those truths, a very uh, evident counterfeit. You see, there is a life uh, that is not the life which the Bible seeks to reveal to us. And that life leads to death. It is not the life that Jesus seeks to reveal. There is a satisfaction that is temporary and ultimately empty in vain in this life. There is a joy that is offered in and by this world that ultimately is futile and fleeting. And there is salvation offered from many directions that in the end is ultimately no salvation at all. First, as we look to these 17 verses, we find that Jesus is the source of true life. Jesus seeks to introduce this reality that I've been speaking of, this Reality of union with Christ by using what we might call or view a common metaphor. And that is the metaphor of this vine. And Jesus begins in verse 1 by saying, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Now, while I had a reason for adding that word in front of each of my points, Jesus has also a reason his adding this, this simple term, the, the true vine, gives meaning to an already understood and common metaphor to the people to whom he was speaking. It was a very common thing for them to, to, to hear an illustration spoken of concerning the vines. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, Israel was described time and time again as God's vine. One example is found in Psalm 80. Verses 8 and 9 read this way, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. But if we were to continue reading and, and read all the other references that we find in the Old Testament about Israel being the vine, we would find that the, the vine was used to express often, most often, Israel's failure to produce fruits and so live for the glory of God. For example, Jeremiah 2, verse 21 says this, Yet I planted you a choice vine, wholly a pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? And so while Israel was viewed as God's vine, that imagery was 
then used to express how Israel continually failed and rebelled. And so at this very point, as Jesus comes on the scene in this farewell discourse and he's speaking his, some of his last words to his disciples, he, he supersedes Israel. And he sets himself as the very goal of Israel. Not just a, another plan or a part of the plan, but the very goal of the entirety of the history of Israel. He is the vine that, that will not fail to produce fruit and live for God's glory perfectly. He is the true vine that the vine of Israel was pointing to. Where Israel failed, Jesus prevailed. The gospel writer, John, in this particular gospel, has on several occasions occasions sought to reveal Jesus as the true light, the greater temple, the true shepherd, the true water that came from the rock, the prophet greater than Moses. And now, in chapter 15, he expresses Christ as the greater expression of God's vine. If we were to continue reading in that psalm that I I read earlier, Psalm 80, the psalmist goes on to present the very goal of Israel as God's vine. And we'll find that Israel, even at that time, was was not the goal, but rather the means. It, It goes on and reads, Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock of your right right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Jesus in this passage merely merely sit, merely sit, sets himself in light of God's original plan. Again, it's not a changing plan going along with, with history unfolding. It was the very plan of God from the beginning. beginning. Israel was, was chosen as a vehicle through which God would reveal himself most fully. And now in Christ, we find throughout this gospel and throughout the New Testament, God has unleashed his revelation in its fullness. It's just as John initially recorded in the very beginning of this gospel. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then later the writer of Hebrews expresses it this way. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that is the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Everything that that Israel had been seeking found its answer in the person of Christ. He alone could provide them the very life that God had intended for his creation. I don't know, I'm thinking as I'm saying this, you remember the old song? It's definitely not contemporary these days. We used to be called contemporary. But simple phrase, uh, of course, Jesus is the answer for the world today. 
Uh, and he is. He, he is the answer to every question, everything that Israel and even you and I today seek. Jesus is, in fact, the answer. Any and all who are attached to Christ and Christ alone will experience this true life that comes from God. Jesus then goes on from the first verse and it makes a general declaration of truth which he's going to then begin to unpack or explain in, in the following verses. While this true life is not gained by one's work or fruit, that is, we don't work to get this life, this life is clearly evidenced by the fruit or the work. Those who do not produce fruit, he says, or every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, they evidence a sort of life that is not in Christ. And God's word tells us that they will be taken away. And those who produce fruit, the Bible teaches us in that same verse, verse 2, that they will be made to produce even more fruit. So those who don't produce fruit will be removed. Those who produce fruit of any sort, of any measure, the Bible teaches us through Christ's words, they will be pruned and they will be made to produce more fruit in Christ. And Jesus is going to go on to help us understand a little more some of these things. First, Jesus continues on further to address the ones who produce fruit. He takes it in reverse. He, he mentions those who don't produce fruit, they'll be taken away, but those who produce fruit will be pruned and so produce more fruit. And then he takes up that issue, those who produce fruit. The fruit of the Christian life is, is not the means by which a person becomes a Christian, but it is the result of it. Without a doubt, it is the result of it. Jesus explains to his disciples in verse 3, Already you are clean, not because of your fruit, but because of the word that I have spoken to you. And we understand that it's the living and abiding word of Christ that has always given life. It is the very means of, of, of life-giving power. It is the source of... Of new life. This, this word of Christ. Who is himself the very word of God. And as we saw last week. As we looked at the very message of the gospel. It is this proclaimed message. The gospel. That is the word of God. That is the means by which God saves sinners. It is then the evidence of God's word transforming a life. That is seen by the fruit of one's life. God's word is the life-giving power to save. But where God's word saves, there is evidence through the fruit that is produced in that life. Jesus then commands all who believe, all who are genuine believers, to abide in me. Abide in me. It's a command. It's, it's not an option when, it's when we read it there. It is commanded by Christ. Abide in me. And of course he adds to that the, the converse that I also will abide in you. Now, Jesus doesn't here mention this because there are some Christians who abide in Christ and, and produce fruit. And then other Christians who don't abide in Christ and produce fruit. That would be pushing the illustration too far. And the rest of Scripture does not support that idea. 
This command to abide in me serves as both the motivation for us. It's commanded. And it also serves as the guarantee of the fruit of the Christian life. It reveals the the mutual work of God and the believer to live for God's glory. Those who experience true life in Christ will, in fact, abide in Christ. Fall in love with Christ. And the result is Christ abiding in us. And as Paul later states it, Christ in us, the hope of glory. It is Jesus' goal to help us understand that he alone is the source of all that is good. Not defined by the world, but defined by our creator. Disciples of Christ cannot bear fruit unless they abide in him. Jesus goes on to say in verse 5, Without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Now, we know... That Jesus doesn't mean that people who don't abide in Christ are don't function in this life. We, we know Jesus doesn't mean that when he says, without, without me you can do nothing. Okay, so what about all those people out there who don't believe? They're still living life. But he means that no one can do works that bring glory to God outside of him. No work at all outside of Christ brings glory to God. Moral or good works are nothing more than earthly, temporal, good works done by morally good people and in the end are worthless, vain, empty, futile unless they are done for the glory of God. And that is only possible in Christ. And while it is evident that everyone we see living in this world are experiencing life in some sense. The life that they are experiencing is, is temporary. It's empty. It's vain. Apart from Christ, their life is, is no life at all. Not the life that we long for. They have hearts of stone. They are spiritually dead. They may do good things here and now. They may be good people from our point of view. But in God's eyes, they are rebels living for their own glory. They are alive in Adam and they will die in Adam unless they repent and believe. Jesus and Jesus alone is the source of true life. Second, Jesus is the source of true satisfaction. Jesus goes on in this this short teaching to address the futility of life that does not abide in him. It is clear in Jesus' illustration that that those who do not abide in him face certain judgment. Now, contrary to some, Jesus does not teach here that people who were once saved and produced no fruit lose their salvation. Again, I would argue with you that that's pushing or pressing this illustration he's using too far. Jesus is merely keeping with the natural flow of the illustration. It is understood that unfruitful branches... And the vine are to be removed and they're not worth anything but being burned. A biblical illustration of the reality of what Jesus is talking about has just been experienced by the disciples, though they they didn't understand it yet. But but we just read about it and we do understand it because we've heard the full story. 
that the branches that are producing no fruit that are taken away and are worth nothing but to be burned was lived out in the life of Judas Iscariot. And so we see a real life illustration of what Jesus is speaking of here. He is not teaching that some come to Christ or saved and then they kind of go their own way, stop producing fruit, so Jesus takes them away and they're burned in judgment. But the threat of impending judgment serves to emphasize the reality that, that not only is it true that true believers will abide in Christ, but also that we will only find our satisfaction in Him. See, what follows as we read this text serves as both a promise in the context of a condition. If you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish, whatever you want, and it will be done for you. So if we abide in Christ, living for God's glory, then we get everything we want. Now that's a promise, isn't it? We should just stop right there, shouldn't we? If we abide in Christ, we get whatever we want. That's what the Bible says. If, if you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But this doesn't... We have to be careful when we read such a promise. And it is a promise that we don't miss the condition that gives the meaning to the promise. This doesn't mean that if we want a new car or new house or a whole lot more money, then all we have to do is ask for it. And of course, add the all-important phrase, in Jesus' name, and it's ours. Now, while there are some who teach such things, we know that this isn't true. The testimony of Scripture alone reveals that Christ's most faithful followers did not experience a life of health and wealth, but rather to the contrary. When we abide in Christ, what Christ is speaking of here is, is our desires are transformed. We begin to truly desire what God desires. We don't bend God to our fleshly desires. Oh God, please, if I could just have the new car, if I could just, just get the new house, then everything will be perfect. We don't bend God to our fleshly desires. Our fleshly desires begin to pale in light of God's glory and become nothing to us and they fade away. Abiding in Christ creates within us this new desire, this new hunger, this new appetite. The things that, that offer temporary satisfaction began to seem empty and vain and, and the things that seem pointless to this world but glorious in God's sight become the things that we truly, insatiably desire long for as our hearts and minds are, are renewed in the image of Christ by, by His Word, by our, our, our fellowship with believers and our living forth for His glory and proclaiming the Word. As, as our hearts and minds are renewed, we see more and more the things from God's perspective and we recognize what truly satisfies. As the psalmist says in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Or as it has been stated another way. If it pleases you to please him. Then do as you please. Think about that. If it pleases you to please him. Then do as you please. But be careful. That you're not trying to dupe God. Into getting what your fleshly desires are, but rather that your desires are being transformed. 
It is in our transformed desires and, and our passion to live for Christ and, and so produce fruit that God is glorified. And this is, this is the proof of our discipleship. Not merely our profession, because we say so, but the life that flows from that profession. Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified that, that you... Bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. John Piper, pastor and theologian, some of you are familiar with, says it this way. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Jesus is the source of true satisfaction. Number three, Jesus is the source of true joy. Now, at this point, Jesus adds another concept to what he's been teaching. He adds another term to this ideal of abiding in him. He now says, abide in my love. And he links this concept with the believer's joy, with your joy, with my joy. Abide in my love, and then that's going to somehow have something to do with your joy. Now, while my opening illustration of union with Christ may serve to help us to begin to grasp what it means to be in Christ, it is extremely Limited. If we press an illustration like I used in, in opening this message too far, then we'll end up defining God's love by our own experience of being in love. The problem with that is our experience, however wonderful it is, is wrought with sin and is distorted. It's imperfect. God is the definer of love. His love is absolute, unconditional, and perfect. This truth is revealed, as Jesus says, by the Father's love for Jesus. As we look at the Father's love for Jesus, we see what, what love looks like. And now Jesus offers that very same absolute, unconditional, and perfect love to his followers, to you, to me. And then invites us to live in it. To just remain in it, to abide in it, to dwell in it, to stay there. And this command to abide in my love serves as both an invitation to Everyone who believes and also as an example for us. Not only are we to enjoy this absolute, unconditional and perfect love, but we are to express it as well. We are to receive it and we are to express it. That is abiding in Christ's love. So just as abiding in Christ is a mutual abiding of Christ in us and, and us in Christ, so too is our abiding in his love. In his love and his love abiding in us, which is Evidenced by its expression. It involves receiving and giving. In chapter 14, Jesus said, several weeks ago we looked at that, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Out of a heart that, that is passionate and, and in love with Christ, we, we want to please him. That's what he told us in chapter 14. But here he turns it around and he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now, if we take that verse in isolation, if we just put that one verse out there, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. It almost sounds like a legalistic invitation to God's favor, right? If you'll do these things, then you can live right here in this realm of love and experience it. If we, if we take it in isolation, that's what it sounds like. However, in the light of the context that we read throughout this chapter and, and throughout the Gospel of John, not let alone the entirety of the scriptures, 
we understand that that is at all the meaning that John puts forth or the words of Christ as he teaches us that if we keep his commandments, we will abide in his love. Obeying Christ is, is a part of the new desire of the believer. It is something that gets changed in us as we come to Christ and we are saved from our sins. It isn't a drudgery, but it's a joy. We want to live for him. We want to seek to please him. So now Jesus expresses the converse of the heart that seeks to live in obedience out of love for him. That is, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's the heart that wants to. Now Jesus speaks of the reality in reverse. Our pursuit of holiness, we're living in obedience for Christ, will, will be the means by which we will experience the love he freely gives. Now, I don't mean in the sense that we don't get it if we don't do things right, but rather how we, we feel it, we experience in real time. It is in our obedience that we will feel that we are pleasing him. Now, while our lives as Christians are not based on feelings, and we must be very careful when we start touching on in that area, our feelings can serve to bring us assurance and joy in our relationship. We clearly understand that if we live in sin and rebellion, it is unlikely that we will feel that Christ is pleased with us, nor should we expect it. If we passionately pursue obedience to Christ's commands, even when we don't feel like it, you find often that the feelings follow. You ever been given that counsel? You know, you ever heard somebody say, I don't, I just don't think I'm in love anymore. And, and your advice is, well, well, act like it. Do what love does and the feelings will follow. Jesus purposely shares this truth so that his followers would experience joy. It is about the experience of joy. In, in the here and now, as we're living out this life in Christ, God desires for us to know joy and, and reveals to us the means by which we will experience it. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my law. And this joy that he, he says that he's, is the reason why he's t- telling us these words is not circumstantial. It, it's available during the good times and the bad times. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That you will experience and feel all that comes with the abiding life in Christ, Jesus is the true source or the source of true joy. And last, Jesus is the source of true salvation. Now, Jesus further explains what he means by keeping his commandments and abiding in his love. He adds to the experience of love, the expression of it, and sets himself up as the ultimate example. Now, we, we need to remember that in these words that Jesus is speaking, he has in view the hour. Remember the hour that we we saw? My hour has not yet come. My, the hour is at hand. The hour is here. It is the hour of the cross. He, he has this in view as he speaks these words. It's his trial and his crucifixion and his death. And of course, the subsequent resurrection. And he, he isn't necessarily saying when he says uh, in this passage that no greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. He, he isn't necessarily saying that if we want to fully express our love for our friends, then we'll die for them. So if you really want to love your friend, go die for them. 
Now, don't think that's what Jesus is encouraging his disciples nor us to do at this moment. He was revealing, in a very real sense, his own mission as the ultimate expression of love, which his disciples, including us, should follow. And the text literally reads, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for the ones he loves. I only state that because I don't want us to read friends in a, a, a cultural uh, uh, way, the way we understand friends. It's, it's that he lays down his life for the ones he loves. And Jesus is about to serve as the living or really the dying illustration of this very reality. And in this text, we find both the limitations of what true salvation is all about. Now, just follow me for a moment. Salvation is universal. Is it not? Do you agree? Salvation is universal. It is for every person without distinction. However, it is not universal without exception. You see, some believe that because of Jesus' death on the cross for the sins of the world, that his death means that everyone will be saved. Because he died on the cross, everything was dealt with and everybody is saved. Now, it's called universalism. But then when we say Jesus' death or salvation is universal, that's not what we mean. We mean that it's available throughout the entire world without distinction, but not without exception. While Jesus' death was universal in its scope, it is not universal in its application. The application of salvation is limited, and Jesus begins to touch on this in chapter 15. Jesus laid down his life for whom? The ones he loves, he says, his friends. So the question then becomes, who are the ones he loves? Who are his friends? And he tells us. He says, you are my friend. What? If you do what I command you. No greater love has anyone than he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Again, one of those verses that if taken in isolation, we could uh, wrongly understand as a works-based salvation. We are his friends if we do what he commands us. How do you know if you're one of these friends of Jesus? Do you do what he commands? You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, while we are certain that none of us can do what Christ commands perfectly, we can be obedient to Christ. God's word teaches us that by his divine power, we are made able to live for him. If the ideal of being able to do what Christ commands uh, troubles you because you're very aware of your sinfulness, you know, and I understand this, you know, we, we think about it being obedient to Christ, we go, we can't do it. We're sinners. It's impossible. I know me. I know my heart. And I just can't do it. And if that, that, that gives you a hard time when you think of being obedient to Christ and his friends or those who do, does what he commands, then let me ask that question another way. Are you okay with living in a way that you know dishonors Christ? Is that okay with you? Do you consistently and knowingly live contrary to Christ's commands without any struggle? You know, you just 
go away that the Bible says is not how we should live and it's no problem. It isn't. It isn't a struggle to live up to the standards of Christ that should concern us. If that struggle, if there's a struggle for you to live obediently to Christ, that's not in itself what should be concerning to you, but whether or not there is a struggle. Does that make sense? Thank you. Now, if you answered the last few questions here in the positive, otherwise that you're okay living in a way that dishonors Christ, you consistently live in such a way that you, the Bible clearly says is not honoring Christ and you do so without struggle, then you might want to consider the, the fruit of your profession. Or as Paul says, examine yourself. Jesus goes on to add a final goal and evidence of this true salvation that is found in Him, in abiding in Him. You see, as our Creator, God is justified in demanding obedience from us. He has that right. And we are obligated to obey. Whether we like it or not, He's God, we're not. He gets to say what you're supposed to do. And you're obligated to follow Him. Just like a slave would be expected to do all that His Master commanded, so too is all of humanity expected to do all that our Creator commands us to do. But we who are in Christ, we experience a new relationship. Not that we are no longer expected to live in accordance with Christ's commands. He's already told us to, to, to keep His commandments time and time again. But that as friends, instead of slaves, as He goes on to, to, to speak about, that we are no, no longer slaves, but friends, as such... God reveals to us more than the external commands. It's not do this, don't do that. Through the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, again, to which John's going to turn our attention in the the coming weeks, believers are given the mind of Christ. We are granted understanding of spiritually discerned truths that, that can only be discerned by the Spirit. We are enabled to understand in an increasing manner the truths that are recorded in Scripture. Yes, I know there's hard stuff there. But we grow in our understanding because we have the mind of Christ. We have the presence of the Spirit. We are abiding in Christ. Union with Christ affords us the ability to know not only the commands of God, but the heart of God that stands behind those commands. And we're able not only to grasp how they bring glory to God, but also how obeying them is for our own good. And it is this increasing ability to grasp the heart and mind of God that affords us increased assurance in our relationship as well as increased joy in our experience. Being Christ's friend does not communicate a common relationship that we might understand it to mean in our culture, but but a comprehensible relationship because we are made able to understand that Jesus himself is the source and the goal of true salvation. Finally, if we are less confused about all this discussion about fruit and works concerning our salvation, Jesus turns back to the ultimate source of everything. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Salvation and calling have their source in Christ and Christ alone. We can't make ourselves saved. We can't wish ourselves saved. We don't want to wish ourselves saved as lost sinners. 
And while there is a decision to be made as well as a specific response required by all who hear the gospel, we are reminded that salvation is of the Lord. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Salvation is in his hands. But we're not left in the dark, are we? We're not left in the dark to wonder about our salvation or even really the salvation of others. While we can't know beyond shadow of a doubt, we can look at other people and have confidence. We're not left in the dark to go, I wonder if Jared's really saved. I walk with him, I talk with him, I see his life, and I have confidence that he loves Jesus and his life has been transformed. True believers abide in Christ. True believers produce much fruit. True believers want what God wants. True believers abide in Christ's love and express his love. True believers experience the joy of Christ. True believers keep Christ's commands. True believers bear abiding fruit in the lives of those to whom they proclaim the truth of the gospel and thus bring them to salvation. Most of you have experienced, or at least many of you have experienced, what it feels and looks like to be in love. So, simple question. How does that experience compare to what you have in Christ? Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. And we pray that you will take it and you will bear it upon our hearts. Press it in to the deepest, darkest recesses that we try to hide away in. And cause it to bring conviction to our hearts and our minds and and Lord, use that conviction to bring us to a place of repentance as, as believers or, or maybe for those who have yet to, to know you, that you might do that very thing today and bring them into a relationship of joy in Christ as they repent and believe the gospel message. Father, it is, I know, as I've talked with many believers. It's it's our desire to know you. It's our desire to walk in you. But this life is a life of constant struggle. I pray, Lord, that by your word and even these very words we've heard today, that you would would give us rest. You would give us joy. You would help us to, to make another step in growing and grasping and understanding this reality of being united with Christ in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And that, that that growing understanding would have an effect on how we live. And that that would be clear to those who are looking at us. And, and it would so prove that we are your disciples. Have your way in our hearts this morning. For your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.